For April 18th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 146. Does Boromir poop? Overthinking It podcast, a compilation of swearing and anger at technology. <laughs> Brought to you by the American Luddite Institute. The American Luddite Institute, bringing you the finest in technology. <laughs> uh, it probably doesn't deserve. <laughs> Um, uh, from the technological black hole known as my apartment in Los Angeles, California, uh, I'm your host, Matthew Rather, and I'm about to make this joke for the fourth time tonight, though the last three times we've had to scrap the podcast because something went wrong with the recording. So, I'm here in Los Angeles where a Game of Thrones has not aired yet. <laughs> it's nice that we're laughing. It's funny to us and no one else because they haven't sat through the last hour um, trying to get this damn thing to record uh, properly. But um, we're we have a we have a sponsor tonight. It's actually an anti-sponsor. This is it. Skype version five is a piece of crap. <laughs> Ooh, Don't install it on your Macintosh. And this is the the version numbers are different, I think, on Windows. But uh, it will grind your system to a halt. Every audio interface you have will, you know, cause your computer to uh, continuously grind to a halt, overlay noise on uh, your recordings. Everything will be bad. So use the old version uh, of Skype. And when it prompts you to upgrade, say, hell no. Overthinking a podcast brought to you by Not Skype Five. All right, so uh, we're hoping to get to Game of Thrones eventually here, even though we've been recording for about an hour and not producing any podcast. Um, we uh, we're going to uh, also maybe talk about Atlas Shrugged. So, in honor of those two, uh, <laughs> part one is in uh, is in select theaters. Um, the um, so part the, one of, of presumably like seventeen, right? yeah, right. <laughs> of of I mean, the, shrugged. I believe like part one's only about three hours long, so you know it's got to be at least ten parts. That's my so uh, in honor of these two uh, improbable books that have been adapted uh, for uh, screens large and small, the question of the week is: What book? <laughs> oh God, <laughs> I know all of your answers already. No, I'm going to change my answer. I'm <laughs> We've Thank recorded this God. several times. This, this is point. so dispiriting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I normally drink while we do this podcast, and, and tonight I decided not to. I decided what it would be like. I wanted to know what it would be like to do it straight. And uh, <laughs> it would be much improved by a drink, this experience that, that uh, we've had. Anyway, no, on. What improbable book should be adapted for uh, a television miniseries or a um, or a, a feature film, or a series of feature films. Improbable book by dint of its its length or its impenetrability or its um, its uh, you know incredible suckitude, like the suckitude of Skype version five on the Macintosh. <laughs> 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 so, um, so uh, first in the alphabet because all is right in the world. After that self-indulgent rambling introduction, it is Mr. Peter Fenzel. 
Hey, so the first time we recorded this, the book that I cited was the all-purpose cookbook, Joy of Cooking, by Irma Brombauer and Marion Becker, which is a gigantic tome of uh, what they refer to as reliable recipes with a casual culinary chat, uh, where you can do, which, which dates back to the Great Depression, where you can learn such things as how to can, pickle, and eat squirrel, possum, and raccoon. But in this new edition, I'm going to change in this sort of bleaker time that requires a great <laughs> deal of, of personal investment in what we're trying to accomplish, that I'd really love to see the big-budget Hollywood blockbuster version of Soren Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling. Where, yes. Where, yes. <laughs> it's got a where, great name for an action movie. It does, because you're going to go and you're going to be like, oh man, it's going to have a picture of a dude with a knife on the front page, on the, on the poster. It's going to be like, dude with a knife, and then you're going to go and it's going to be like, Hegelian philosophy, emerging the inner and the outer, inadequately, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, you're like a reader's guide of definitions as you walk into the theater. Exactly, exactly. So, so, it's like 3D glasses, but you open it up and it's just like a, a bunch of the German translation. Yeah, look, you know, it, it's it's Danish, by the way. Um, so it's even tougher than German. Uh, but yeah, no, no, Fear and Trembling is, of course, the uh, not that Danish is harder than German. It's just a little more obscure. I don't know which, which language is more difficult, I'm but during, I know that... During what? wartime, it often is German, right? Oh, really? Oh, oh. yeah. It just what up? What up? I went there. I went there. <laughs> uh, so yes. So I would guess. Uh, so so I'll I'll, I'll write, read a brief quote. Uh, was it? Um, there, oh, was, oh gosh. Uh, the tragic hero assures himself that the ethical obligation is totally present in him by transforming it into a wish. Agamemnon, for example, can say, To me, the proof that I am not violating my fatherly duty is that my duty is my one and only wish. Consequently, we have... And, of course, he's using this to justify Agamemnon murdering his daughter. So, so it gets a lot... It flips around. The, the book is generally about people who do things that are bad. So the book is about people who do things that are bad, acknowledging they are bad in the service of, of sort of a, a, an ethical calling that is like s- slightly more self-generative and it's sort of a bridge between theological thinking and more secular existentialism and a repudiation of the Hegelian dialectic uh, and, and as such would make an awesome movie everybody should go <laughs> yeah. see but would it's still the, be better the, the, what? That's basically, that's basically like the plot of Mars Needs Moms right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much so here's the if it's Janiah don't worry to quote a uh, to quote a well-known play don't yeah. worry you just go uh, stand over there by the pile of rocks, the goat, and the knife. <laughs> awesome. I love that play that I wrote, which is awesome. So yeah, so so much like how uh, Fear and Trembling asserts that the individual has a sort of uh, ultimate ethical responsibility uh, for the choices that they make in terms of following uh, any sort of religious uh, situation, Atlas Shrugged also says the individual has a lot of authority uh, for no reason. <laughs> that they get to use whatever they want to do whatever they want, and uh, a hater's gonna hate. So, um, so there you go. Um, something along those lines. I'm sure that any number of Kierkegaard scholars are gonna pipe up in the comments with any number of grossly inaccurate things I've said about the book. <laughs> yeah, it's um, true. The uh, the, Kierke- the Kierkegaard scholars are fast and furious on the overthinking it uh, site. 
Well, they, they, the Kierkegaard's ghosts who like Fast and Furious are the ones who come towards. Oh, speaking but of I, Fast and speaking of Fast and Furious. Oh, I wanted to say I want to say one more thing. Just one more thing. One more, which was that uh, Fear and Trembling was published a hundred years before The Joy of Cooking, but was translated into English eight years later, eight years after Joy of Cooking was published. Um, anyway, speaking, speaking of Fast and Furious, uh, what with Fear and Trembling, what do you need to call the sequels? Like Fear to Tremble More is. Uh, <laughs> you know? wow, wow. Fearer and trembling younger. Then we got like part two, part three. Or you can just go like full on hardcore, right? And then just make all of the other books. Right? You see a long so you could be like you could do like the uh, the concept of anxiety. <laughs> and like um, concluding unscientific postscripts philosophical sick- fragments. Like <laughs> the sickness the sickness unto death is the yes. last one. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Moving on in the alphabet, Joshua McNeil is here. I am indeed. Uh, so I've been thinking long and hard about this. Uh, the joy of cooking, actually, I think is the one I'd, I'd most like to see. So I'm sorry that uh, y'all didn't get to hear Pete's fabulous pitch for that book. But uh, <laughs> Oh, it was really, it was our A material. It was <laughs> the single best thing that's ever been on the podcast. Oh, come on. Really? It was that good? It was our it was A material on those recordings. You want, you want to watch like an hour and a half of someone explaining all the different kinds of fish and like what kind of oil you like to use to serve with them? I think <laughs> like, the existence of the Food Network shows that, yeah, Yes, yes, we as yeah. America do want to see that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I feel like Joy of Cooking asserts a superiority over the Food Network that would be kind of difficult to access. But at any rate. Right. Well, if you can get Meryl Streep in it, apparently it'll work. Yeah, uh, fair enough. I'm going to go with uh, the the Old Testament Book of Numbers. Done as a Star's <laughs> series. Um, Isn't that just the Ten Commandments? Or, oh, no, that's no, actually. Uh, no, the book, of, the book of Numbers, I'm going I'm to read just a, a quick passage here. The families of the Gershonites shall pitch behind the tabernacle westward, and the chief of the house of the father of the Gershonites shall be Eliasaph, the son of Lael. And it does that for about 50 pages. Um, <laughs> but wait, I figured... Wait, McNeil, as- McNeil, McNeil, can you reread that passage, but now input the char- like the actors you'd like to play each of the people mentioned? Okay, and like, Stephen as- Falk, the son of Gary Busey, the priest, chief <laughs> uh-huh. of, the, of the Levites... The oversight of them that keep charge of the sanctuary of Liv Tyler was the family of the Malites. Uh-huh. Uh, that was, so the Star's original series, basically, like, they take history and then add nudity and violence. So I figured these lists of, like, and this is also the section of the Bible where they do all the begats, you know, so-and-so, begat, so-and-so, begat, so-and-so, which I feel the Star's would show us in graphic detail for season after season, <laughs> which would actually be pretty entertaining to watch. That would be pretty awesome. All the, uh, that actually, that's, that's already a show on Skinamax. Oh, not done. <laughs> it was called yeah, Begat. Is that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the, that. that's the title of the adaptation, Begat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, excellent. Dave Schechner is back, becoming quite the regular on the podcast. Hey, hey. Well, I often find myself alone on Sunday nights. <laughs> Alone with only the with only the, the the cold company of science to comfort you. Yeah, yeah. I'm, so, I'm so glad that you don't actually want to be here, Dave. That it's purely oh, no. a function of, of I mean, entertainment. 
I, uh, the judge assured me that this could be taken off of my hours. So. <laughs> and that tonight it's been like six of those hours. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. Dave really wants to be here. He's just pretending that he uh, he doesn't. And then if there's to make, a, to make myself look cooler, I, I, these are people that I love and have known for years and years. I, I put them down to make myself feel bigger. I was going to say as sort of a thing with me, and we have a safety word worked out, and it's all going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> people listening to this podcast, write in and guess what you think, Pete and Mike. I think you'll be alarmingly surprised. And please also include your favorite recipe in the joy of cooking and your favorite philosophical concept in Fear and Trembling by Soren Kierkegaard. Okay. All right. So for my uh, for my book, I'm going to go with uh, Susan Orlean's uh, classic, The Orchid Thief, uh, about her investigation. <laughs> you use that time well. You use that time real well. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, awesome. No, that's ridiculous. That was the source material for uh, for adaptation. So I'm going to go with um, the uh, the self help book. Uh, He's just not that into you. <laughs> oh uh, no! Okay. You know, I was racking my brain trying to come up with other lists of things that that have been and really should not have been made into movies. Uh, although adaptation is an amazing movie and, and sort of I guess illustrates you know what can be done uh, with you know inexplicable material if you just have. Uh, incredible talent, you know, like Charlie Kaufman. Okay, uh, so I, I have two answers. Uh, the first one is uh, the classic children's book, Everybody Poops. Um, but I would change the punctuation. I'd put a question mark in it because then people I mean, would go to the theaters. I hate to break it to you, but I've seen many movies on those lines. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call up the safety word if you continue. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm not like saying that they were scat or nothing. I mean, I have four sisters and a lot of to- yeah. poop teaching. You have to do poop teaching. Use every media you have available. It's an I, urgent I, thing. I guess that's. Uh, I guess that's so, right? You 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 plop kids these days in front of like an instructional DVD about potty use, right? Yeah, this yeah. one, yeah. Which is funny. I feel like that's one of those things you don't have to teach kids, though. Well, you, you know, have it's, not had kids. You have not had kids at all. I mean, you don't teach them to poop. You teach them to poop in the toilet. Like they will poop by, their, by themselves. Like they will Actually, poop. No, that's that's not what everybody poops is about, right? Like everybody poops isn't isn't about um, like the proper time and place for pooping. Okay. It, it's about oh. not feeling shame for your most feral animal aspects. So right? who would start? You've got my attention. <laughs> we got to set this up. Who starts this? Wow. I mean, who? That's amazing, yeah. I mean, I pitched this idea to Josh, and I just, like, who do you, I, I guess I'd go with, um, uh, 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 oh, damn it, what's that? My brain is completely dead. You guys go first, and then I'll, I'll come around. Not, my not, it's that you, it has to be the person who you can least imagine pooping. So I'm going with Natalie Portman. I'm going with Patrick Stewart. I'm going to clarify that, believe it or not, and this this is going to sound too appropriate to be to be true, but everyone, everybody poops is a uh, translation of a Japanese book <laughs> called Mina Unchi. Uh, so it's... Uh, so I'm sure there might be a Japanese movie about it already, which is quite enthusiastically done. Uh, and, I, and I would like to see uh, Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis in this movie um, falling in love while pooping. I think it would be excellent. It's probably, well, uh, like, it's probably already a really disturbing anime, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's like, in a world where the <laughs> placed emotions with poop... <laughs> And tentacles with other uh, tentacles. Uh, I'm, I'm going to pitch that my, my star is crossover artist Michael Stipe, uh, who will also record a song for the uh, the album <laughs> called "Everybody Poops Sometimes." <laughs> with the extra um, chapter continents, yes, excellent. Yeah. 
By the way, my, 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 other, my other pitch for Inexplicable Book turned into a movie would work because it has a built-in sequel all ready to go. Uh, I was going to go with Strunk and White's The Elements of Grammar. So that oh. two years later, you could have Strunk and White's The Elements of Style. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, I gotcha, I gotcha. I haven't right. read Elements of Grammar. Is it good? Oh, Elements really? It's, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's, it lacks the style of Elements of Style, but it is perfectly written. I don't, I don't know, Pete. I, I, I guessed the end, like, right away. <laughs> Elements of Style would make a great breakdancing movie. Elements of <laughs> The four Elements of Style. Yeah, Elements, Elements of Style is about a smooth-talking con man who, <laughs> you know what I mean, who, like, talks his way into a corporate job and fleeces the U.S. government for... It's, it's essentially, it's uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yeah. yeah. When you mentioned, when someone mentioned that Meryl Streep would, could be in any movie... Make it good, but for some reason, the movie that immediately flashed into my mind was uh, a movie based on the instruction manual to my old 1985 uh, Volvo station wagon, the owner's manual. But she was amazing in that. I know, it was so realistic. The way she had the tire. Oh man, it was crazy. That, that, that accent. I can't believe she didn't speak Swedish. <laughs> yeah. She played. I, you know, it's, it's, I mean, she starred as the tire, but you know, under heavy makeup, she actually appeared as multiple other parts. Um, you know, she was the clutch, the camshaft, uh, the dealership. Anyway. <laughs> very nice, very nice. All right, here's mine. Uh, and I had, t- I had a lot of time, so uh, I have a trailer for you. <laughs> imagine, imagine, you know, ominous music and, uh, you know, uh, establishing shots of a sort of barren post-apocalyptic landscape. In a time of chaos which obeys no rules... In a place of insufficiently parliamentary proceedings. (laughs) (laughs) Only one man can hold the floor. And his name is Robert. (laughs) This summer, excitement raises a point of personal privilege. Get ready for Robert's Rules of Order. It is so moved. So the governor's coming back for Robert's Rules of Order. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Awesome. That's actually why he was governor of California, just like to, to really get into the source material. It was yeah, it was research. And yeah. then uh, the um, he's, he's a method actor, you know. He he likes to live the part. The sequel the uh, the sequel is uh, Robert's Rules of Order. I second. Yeah, so it's a seconded. <laughs> or RRO2, if you will. <laughs> um, anyway, that was mine. You can see what I was doing while rebooting my computer and installing the old version of Skype. Because version 5 sucks! <laughs> anyway, you know what doesn't suck? The overview on overthinkingit.com. The latest episode is about the Karate Kid and features uh, features Dave Schechner, Mark Lee, and John Parrish giving an alternative commentary with uh, insights, overthinking, and a few jokes um, uh, for uh, the film 
The Karate Kid. The overview is a series of alternative commentaries, which means you need your own copy of the movie and the ability to listen to an MP3 at the same time. And when you buy and download the overview, you can play the movie and uh, listen to the track. It will give you instructions for how to sync them up uh, when you listen. And uh, it's like listening to the movie. It's like watching the movie with your favorite overthinkers. Uh, So obviously not me. Also, I'm there. <laughs> except, except there's less like chips on your couch afterwards. Right. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I make no guarantees. But then again, I'm out. Hope that one in the future. If, if they buy the exclusive package, we'll actually come over and leave chips on their couch while they watch. <laughs> right. That yeah. I'll no, wear that... my balaclava so I can sneak in and out undetected. So uh, you can get that at overthinkingit.com/store. Check out the overview. We're really excited to do one of these uh, every month, and we're offering it for the low, low price of uh, two ninety nine, um, which is less than the last one, which was three ninety nine. And uh, if you buy it in April, we're going to, uh, in honor of the uh, Okinawan art of karate, we are uh, going to donate one dollar. Uh, that is thirty three percent of your purchase price um, to. Uh, so Tsunami relief and earthquake relief in Japan. So we'll uh, make that as a big donation at the end of April. Uh, so buy now. Buy now. Overthinkingit.com slash store. So a Game of Thrones, which I've been expecting to talk about for an hour and a half now and, and have been thwarted. Uh, Josh, you saw it. I mean, what what, what do you have to uh, to say about it? You've, you've read the books, right? I did read the books, uh, and it's I was I spent a lot of the time watching it actually trying to imagine having... S- trying to imagine watching it without having read the books. Yeah, what'd you think uh, of that? It's, uh... The first episode is is really very, very promising. There's, like, the, the attention to detail, the the scenery, the costumes, the acting, it's all very, very good. Um, but there are so many characters in this series that the, the first episode sort of plays as a... Uh, it's like the opening scene of a, a film. It's like a montage of, oh, and here's this other character you should know something about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd encourage all of those who watch it and are kind of bored to stick with it because it's it's it gets good once you start to actually get into the characters a little bit. But you know, at an hour long with thirty characters to introduce, you're really not getting to know much about any of them. Mm. The one thing you do get to know about them is what they look like naked, which Yay! was. Uh, uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm actually. I'm sorry. I'm gonna go watch this right now. I'll see you guys later. <laughs> it's uh, George Martin does. If I recall correctly, it's been a while since I read the books. And if I recall correctly, there are some sex scenes, but they're not. Uh, they're sort of quick and perfunctory. Um, HBO is is uh, just the way I do it. The longest shot in the entire. Uh, in the entire episode is of a woman getting into a bathtub, um, probably by a factor of two. So there's uh, you do get to really know that about it. And HBO, well, you have to take a long time to get into there. a bathtub. You don't want to you don't want to slip on something or you know like uh, fall and hit your head. You know they didn't have the kind of medical care that we have uh, today. It's a uh, it's a sort of medieval. It's a world patterned after you know medieval England, isn't it? So a medieval Europe. So you have to you have to exercise great care. When you, you uh, wanna, stepping wanna, into the bathtub, you want you want to thoroughly check that bathtub for like soap scum, mold, and assassins before getting into it. <laughs> well, you, you don't want to you don't want to get all marotted on it. They're not all they're not all perfunctory. Like when uh, Daenerys, um, 
oh, you know, has sex with her husband. She's married. She's married to the guy, the horse guy. Um, Spoilers. <laughs> married couple has sex. Spoilers. <laughs> that, like, there's a, you know, I don't know. There's there's a decent passage devoted devoted to that. Any, but uh, your your point is, it's I don't know. It sort of sensationalizes it in a little way. I mean, right? Like, you can't shoot any of the characters um, uh, and make them ugly, right? They, they're like even ugly people on TV are TV ugly, you know. Yes, and none of these people are ugly. And um, well, that's not true. Actually, the opening scene is of some of the Night's Watch guys uh, who are in the in the story. They're sort of this uh, semi-voluntary military order that defends the northern borders of this kingdom. And they, uh, it's like if you get caught, you know, uh, for murder or something, you can either be killed or go be a soldier on this place. And those guys are not so uh, so nice to look at. But uh, mm. yeah, Daenerys, the character you just referenced, is stripped down by a man, by two different men twice, and probably has She's longer married. screen time. Uh, not, 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 that takes place. That's one of the two strippings. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, but the you know the the rest of it is just it's it's really well designed. It, I mean, it looks fantastic for a TV show. Um, it looks a lot like Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, less less sort of grand scale, but in terms of the detail, it's it's pretty fantastic. So I'm excited to see what they do with it. I'm I'm a little bit worried that they hyped it so much that it's just not going to be able to live up to anything. But um, you know, I would like to see how they. How they keep doing this? I think it's going to be fun to watch. Has it been? I mean, has it been the same where you are in LA? You can't you can't look in any direction without uh, seeing some kind of display advertisement for a Game of Thrones, like on the side of a bus, or you know, I don't know, in, like image wrap on a building or a billboard or or something like that. They were. I mean, HBO was taking out ads on other. Networks. I saw two different uh, TV shows, one on uh, one on broadcast and one on cable, where um, there was an ad for Game of Thrones. The the marketing um, budget must be huge for this thing, and it does not look. It was not cheap to produce, right? I think it was like forty five million dollars for ten episodes, which I don't know the, the actual numbers of it, but I assume is one of the most expensive TV shows ever made. It's at the high um, end for HBO. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I guess Deadwood probably Deadwood was probably expensive, but like at some point, you know, like there's only so much you could pay for mud. Um, <laughs> but like, this- hey man, keeping Kim Cattrall running running is expensive. Just <laughs> <laughs> that, right? Um, yeah, the the, the, uh, the amount of cocaine that goes into writing, you know, Entourage is probably pretty expensive. But um, <laughs> this is. It's pretty good. I would, I would encourage everybody to check it out. It's, uh, yeah, it's worth they look. they blew their whole budget. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Paul is not an actual man. He's a computer-generated composite of a whole series of algorithms. <laughs> of, of, all the, of all the times for your microphone to work tonight, Rand, it's for that line. <laughs> so so let, let me ask this. Let me ask this question as somebody with no experience with the books or the TV show, right? Is, the, is it explained in the first episode of the show what the Game of Thrones is? Is it like a party game? Is it like a sporting event? <laughs> Like, like, it's they actually, it's actually, it's a, it's a Wii mini game, and uh, you have to like move your thumb around really fast. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, it's like, uh, it's like, so what happens, I, I know. 
I, I know how this works. It's actually, this is an old English game, right? You have, um, you know, say like ten players playing the game, and you set out nine thrones, <laughs> and you get, you get your, your band of minstrels to start playing, and people sort of circle around the thrones, and then you cut the minstrels off, and if, uh, if someone who like, doesn't sit down on the throne in time is a witch, and they're drawn and quartered. You missed the part where they all get in the bathtub together. That's yeah. true. Well, <laughs> bathtub time. I keep my bathtub right next to my thrones. It's all appropriate. I, I guess. I guess what I'm asking, Josh, is like I get the sense that this is a, a story of pseudo medieval sword and sorcery kind of, or maybe not a sorcery, but like sword and horseback intrigue, right? Uh, and that the Game of Thrones is sort of like a game of great houses where people are competing for influence. Is there an actual formal game, or is the term just metaphorical for like the way that the, the, the different the, noble the t- houses? The term is purely metaphorical. Um, okay. Which I am... The, the, the tagline for the show is, you know, it's the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Right. Um, which I do think... I think Parker Brothers really should have, like, trademarked a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. The um, next four, yes. Yes. Parts <laughs> easy. And so I want to see them start pumping out things like that. Like... <laughs> did you ever win? You die. Did you ever wonder what happens to the mice after they've been caught in mousetrap? You know, it's one of those. It's one of those humane traps that just kind of cages them. But like, uh, did you ever like, you know, I don't know, pretend you were stabbing them with pencils through the uh, through the cage? No. <laughs> yeah. No. We yeah. have souls, Matt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Me, me neither. I, I never would have done that. <laughs> I would just gas them. I would just fill the whole room with. After each I was actually. Dust. I, I was pretty. I was pretty busy smearing my face and lipstick and crying, staring into a mirror. So. <laughs> so I, was just, I was just trying to come up with something creepier than what rather just. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I that went is, to I, that is the I, true I, Game of Thrones. <laughs> I went to that summer camp. Uh, that's true. Um, it's a it's a quotation. It's a, it's a joke to be made about Game of Thrones and everybody poops, but I can't I can't figure out. Exactly <laughs> <laughs> I tried to go with the the throne equals toilet joke, and I just couldn't think of a classy way to do it. So yeah, yeah. Well, that was it didn't, wipe didn't thoroughly. Me, you know. Classy. If you wipe thoroughly, it'll be classy. That's, that's <laughs> what, he's the three C. A game of three seashells is what it's called. <laughs> Square away. Yeah. yeah. Don't. So does Boromir poop in the bo- in the show? Like, because he looks really focused on something in that poster, where he's like looking down, he's like holding onto that sword really hard. It's like he's man. Uh, it's, it's actually it's it's an interesting thing. The you know part of the huge uh, you know marketing campaign for this was. Uh, you know, they like showed 15 minutes of the show early. Then there were you know countless interviews. If you're watching HBO for anything else, you've seen you know interviews with every one of these actors ten times. And at one point, Sean Bean says in one of the interviews, "This is this is epic. I've never been a part of anything this big." Which was, <laughs> was like, you were in the Lord of the Rings, which was like. Well, you know, but this just this just illustrates what we all know, which is that you you can never trust anything Sean Bean says or does. Well, that's true. <laughs> right? Like he's, he's easily the least trustworthy actor in working in Hollywood today. We, we, we learned that from Pierce Brosnan the hard way. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because we all relived it many many times. In yeah, that, 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 that story has been retold by by many you know many a bard. Yeah, the, the, the auteurs of Equilibrium have, have leaned heavily on it. 
Yeah, there's not a lot of people who can claim to have been villains in like both PC and like console games. <laughs> like, like, old Lord of the like Boromir will show up in like an old like text adventure. Like it would be nice to like take Sean Bean's body of work and like trace its adaptations over time, like based on the source material he cho- chooses from. Because he's done everything from like the Odyssey. Has he done anything futuristic? Has he been like a space pirate or anything he, like that? He's he's in Equilibrium, right? He's in the post Gunkata sword fighting movie with Christian Bale. Yes, and that's Tay, right. And Tay Diggs. Tay Diggs, that's right. Yeah. Um, both a name and a sentence. Uh, he's in National <laughs> Treasure. He, he's in National Treasure, where, where uh, again, he betrays Nicolas Cage. Although that, actually, I think is a good thing. I think betraying Nicolas Cage counts as <laughs> a plus column. Well, Nicolas Cage got arrested today for spousal abuse, so Sean Bean wins out on that one. There we so. go, yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's terrible. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> he 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 is that his wife named their child Kalel, right? Or they yeah. named their child Kalel, and you think that would be enough for anybody. So but did apparently... she not did she not believe that uh our planet was immediately doomed due to our exploding star and that he should send his child away to a different planet? Apparently she didn't believe in it enough to not give him some lip outside of a restaurant where he beat her publicly or something. Oh, oh yeah. that's terrible. Something like that. oh. I'm, I'm gonna stop making jokes about spouses. Yeah, next, next topic. Let me ask you another question <laughs> about Game Toilet. of Thrones, Josh. Here's another really pressing question about what really digs deep into the meaning behind this. So the second book Oh no no. I'm sorry, not the second book. Another series he has. He has the oh, the whole series is called A Song of Ice and Fire, right? Is that the name of the whole series of books? Yes. Okay. So why did he transpose the two elements? Because usually when both ice and fire are presented next to each other, fire comes first. Like if you find, say, like a trendy Thai restaurant, it'll be fire and ice, not ice and fire. The sword of fire and ice from the original Mirrodin block, Magic the Gathering. Uh, anything, I, I, this is the first time I remember seeing ice and fire. Is it just to make it seem archaic because like the cadence and the syntax is uncomfortable? Or is there some reason why ice precedes fire? In, uh, in the name of the series of books Well, first of all, I think you answered the question Which is, like, Martin was probably just trying to make it a little different Than everything else in the world <laughs> um, right. Which I applaud But no, actually, ice plays sort of a major role um, Winter is coming is sort of one of the other taglines And they, like... So the series takes place in a world that, In a world uh, <laughs> That is... It's... It's a lot like sort of a medieval Europe, but there are a couple. There are some supernatural elements. They don't play like a, a large role, at least at first. But um, one of the sort of random pieces of it is that seasons last for years and are not fixed. So winter could last seven years, and you could have like a two-year-long summer, and then you could have a one-year-long winter and a twenty-year-long summer. It's sort of you never know. Um, which actually begs a lot of questions. One, like, is more raises there, them. Is, is yeah. there more raises them than begs them? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Drop that on you! Wow, Dang. someone yeah. needs to read Elements of Grammar or or Thursday Grammar. Yeah, the original. Uh, Matt so is, 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 is begs the question not accurate? Yeah, begs the question does not mean raises the question. Sorry, I'm rehashing yeah. the content of the Thursday Grammar uh, old series of posts on overthinking it. Back when I used to write for that website. Um, uh, the uh, yeah, no, um, begs the question means engages in in circular reasoning or assumes yeah. the truth of the proposition you're supposed to be um, supposed to be proving. Yeah, right? it's a rhetorical device. It's a logical argument. Yeah, it's too. a logical fallacy, right? Or yeah, a logical, yeah. you know, 
um, error. So, uh, but it does not mean raises the question, as in like this raises several questions for me. To say that this begs several questions would be like this raises questions and then assumes that it has answered them without actually doing the work of answering them. So maybe that is accurate as well. So really, so really, it should be overthinking its new tagline. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. An example of begging the question would be like, do people have free will? Well, people have souls, and souls have free will, so therefore people have free will. We've just created the same question, and we've just, I mean, we're just, we've circled around, and and we have, we have presupposed, you know, the the thing that we were trying to answer, right? Actually, I think you just created theology, but we could. (laughs) Well, that too. Uh, (laughs) Okay. I was wondering wondering why the seasons happen, so this is going to be really useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, no, so I guess uh, it raises the question that, um, you know, does their planet not have a fixed axis? Do the, you know, I'm like, if you understand how seasons work, it's a little confusing. It also sort of, how do you feed people for seven years during winter uh, is not a question that the, the books have yet answered. So I'm curious a little bit about that. But that has really uh, nothing to do with the show as of yet. The entirety of, uh, of the first episode takes place in about a day and a half. So, um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting. I hope you guys will take a look at it. I would like to discuss it with you further. I think there's going to be some really um, some salient points because there there are a lot of characters that are uh, both sort of they have traits that you love and traits that you hate in a way that I feel like you don't often get on TV. Um, like the worst villain. Um, you end up finding that you really sort of empathize with and care about. Oh, this is in the books, at least. The, the Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, and then the people you, people you think are going to be major characters end up not being, and it's it's sort of it plays with a lot of narrative. Um, and we just sort of got the first taste of that tonight. But um, I would encourage those listening and recording the podcast to take a look and talk more about it. Cool. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited. Did, yeah, Josh, did the the, the books are uh, you know, and I've I've read the books. I like. Um, I read a, a novella that was accept, excerpted from the uh, Daenerys uh, storyline um, from uh, from the first book uh, in like oh god one of the like one of these pulpy science fiction magazines I used to read like Asimov Science Fiction or something like that, um, which is you know the size of the old TV guide. It, it looks like Reader's Digest and it has you know newsprint pages with ink that runs on your hand. So I, you know, I like, I was excited about these books before they came out in 1996 or seven or whatever. And and I got it back then. And so I've been, um, been reading them for a while and I've been kind of a a devotee of them for a while and have been, you know, among those annoyed by the fact that the, you know, the current one has taken like six or seven years, I guess, to, uh, to get out. Well, what is he doing? Going around the world and enjoying the fruits of his fame and, you know, selling it to HBO. How dare he? How dare George? Um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't begrudge him being late with the book. I just feel like he missed a serious marketing opportunity because the show just came out. No, it's like, probably, it's, I think it's being released in July. I mean, I think that the release date for uh, book five is, is July now or something like that. The July 12th. Yeah, we've seen we've seen release dates though for this book for the Dance with Dragons book before. Anyway, so um, uh, one of the things about the um, <laughs> one of the things about the series is that it's it's uh, very unsentimental and it uh, it's not a lot of this kind of good guy bad guy sword and sorcery. You know, uh, magic plays rather a limited role. 
Um, some, you know, there's some kind of elements of the supernatural, but no more than in the, you know, the Left Behind series of books, right? Like, in fact, markedly less than in the Left Behind series of books, which are about the rapture, by the way, in case you didn't know that, you know. Which were also made into movies and also didn't need to be made into movies. There you go. (laughs) Kirk Cameron must Was Kirk Cameron in the movie? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He produced them, too, I think. Wow. I'm not sure. uh, That's that's not Wikipedia talking. That's the top of my head talking, which is covered (laughs) in hair right now. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> uh, Josh, does the does the uh, the um, TV series, which I'm going to watch now as soon as we hang up, uh, does it uh, does it live up to the novel's reputation for sort of unsentimental handling of the, you know, I don't know, certain of the realities of kind of medieval style life? It's hard to say. I mean, honestly, the, the, I think. It's been years since I read the first book, but I think this episode was really the first chapter. I mean, there's, we, we were just introduced to people, so there's really not even time for it to get unsentimental. Uh, there are a couple scenes where, like, um, I don't know how to say this without a spoiler, but the sort of the, the opening scene with Sean Bean's character, when you're first introduced to him, is done just like it's done in the book, and it's very sort of um, sort of ex. ex- uh, it, it, it explains the morality of the time and sort of introduces it to you very quickly and brutally, um, which is yeah. I was I was pleased to see. I was worried that they were going to soften those uh, that piece of it a little bit, but no. The uh, for those of you who sort of don't like fantasy or, or say you don't like fantasy, like this is really a political series of books, and I imagine the show is going to be the same. It's uh, so if you're into sort of of. Uh, Intrigue and, and that sort of thing, you'll enjoy it uh, more so than those who are into dragons and people in hats. They're yeah, no hats? <laughs> Hold no on hats. a minute. Back the truck up. No hats? <laughs> but there's hats in all sorts of good shows. I'm watching Mad Men on DVD right now, season four, and it has all sorts of hats. Yeah, it's, it's mostly, mostly like about the hats. Men's it's hats, hats in the 60s. It's true, more mad hats than Mad Men. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> He is truly the Mad Hatter of the Mad Hatter. Listen, I mean, you're not going to see a single hat in Outsourced, and we know that that's the best show on television right now. So. <laughs> Duh! Fair enough, fair enough. Does well, that sounds much, cool. I, I am disappointed about there being no chair game, but I guess, you know, they'll just have to put that into the movie when they make there are, it. There are some really cool chairs. Oh, yes! Awesome! So, you know... So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's like the drinking game of Thrones. You know, whenever there's a really cool throne on screen, you have to drink. Uh, I, I think we need to market that right away. That's a saleable idea. <laughs> yes, Kirk Cameron, star of Left Behind, uh, 2001, character named Buck Williams, and then uh, 2005, <laughs> Left Behind, both, both, World at both, War. Buck Williams, both a name and a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Very, nice. Very nice. Thank you. <laughs> just going to sit here and point those out. Um... So is Sean Bean both a name and a legume? Yeah. I'll, I'll accept it. I'll allow it. All right. Cool. Awesome. Well, that's cool. Well, that sounds like it was a lot of fun to watch, and I'm sure that Matt will enjoy it when he watches it as well. And we'll all overthink it, because I think that sounds like the kind of thing where there'll be a lot of good stuff to overthink. Should one go about reading the books before watching the television show? Is, is that the kind of thing where it's going to ruin the books? But you say the books aren't even done yet. Right. So, no, no. Well, the series the series isn't done yet. There there are four books published, and I guess a fifth coming this summer. Um, yeah. 
about uh, out of I guess now a projected seven. I didn't say this before, but when like books one and two were being published, um, they actually were called A Song of Fire and Ice. And so midstream, the name of the series was changed. I think to Ice and to Ice and Fire. Like I I, I had a like a hardcover of book two that said Fire and Ice on it. I think I think nice. Do you think it might have been a copyright thing? Well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. That's interesting. But, Pete, um, for, this, yeah. for the sake of our discussions, I would actually prefer you not read them. Uh, I think it'd be interesting to to talk to someone who's watching this without having sort of the backstory and knowing what's going to happen. Done. Uh, <laughs> Easier for me. It was the, it was the, that was the easiest homework assignment of all time. Yeah. I want you to avoid reading this book. All right. I, I will, pro- I will provide the control group who consumes neither the book nor the TV series. <laughs> and will Excellent. sit amazed as you recount them to me. And you've, I mean, you've all heard the like the the controversy about the this this book, like in the delay, George R. R. You know, delaying uh, delaying book five, or I guess taking longer than he'd expected to write um, to write book five, so that there was this kind of what five or six year delay, and like there, this was all. Uh, you really you have to have been dead not to have seen a lot of press coverage of this thing over the last couple of weeks. There was a New Yorker article. About oh, wow. the uh, about um, about the process of the fifth book coming out and how like uh, there was a backlash against him for, against the author on all his you know fan websites for taking so long with the book and then there was a uh, there was a reaction against the backlash where you know a bunch of people got all self righteous well everyone's getting self righteous everywhere but a bunch of people uh, kind of put down That's the backlash the internet is for I know right yeah um, uh, like uh, you know George. George Martin doesn't work for you. George R. R. J. R. R. Martin. Uh, yeah, wait, what, is, what is it with fantasy uh, novelists and the double middle name? Yeah, well, and and R. R. Just like J. R. R. I mean, yeah. is it? I don't know if it's a deliberate homage. Um, yeah, like his parents named him that in hopes that he would one day pen, you know, a, a giant fantasy tome. And they were, and they were so. Um, they were so disappointed when he went to Hollywood and was a television writer for. Uh, he was staffed on Twilight Zone and yeah. on Beauty and the Beast. They, you they, know, like, they were so upset when he didn't, you know, become inspired to write by the horrors he witnessed in World War One. <laughs> <laughs> I like um, to think that there's some psychological determinism to it. Like somehow the extra middle name, like you were just, you know, you always had to fill in forms and it got confusing, and like that led you to fantasy writing in some fashion. <laughs> Like, so where, some world where bureaucracies don't exist in paper form. <laughs> so exactly. There was a um, there was a backlash again. And I I pick up this epic narrative uh, in midstream, much like the epic narrative of the Song of Ice and Fire that contains factions and uh, you know uh, multiple people with murky motives vying for power. The um, the uh, the backlash, then the reaction against the backlash, which is like you can't say bad things about George R R on our. Uh, on our website, and then uh, and then the uh, reaction against the reaction against the backlash, where all the haters went and started their own websites, uh, calling themselves uh, grumblers, like G R R M blurs, you know, and uh, and uh, and things like wow. this. But it you know it raises an interesting question, which is which is this, like what um, what does what does a writer, especially the writer of kind of a serial narrative, a narrative that's not over yet. Um, what does that writer owe the readers, right? Like, do, do you, are you, like, actually 
uh, entering into like a multi-year contract uh, with your readers when you when you put out something like this, and if it you know if it takes you longer than you thought to uh, to kind of make it all work, like are are you on the hook for them? Like, do you have to give them discounts on the next book or something like that? What is the especially in a in an age when you know we seem to be kind of disintermediating uh, the the, the um, relationship between readers and uh, and authors, or you know, I don't know, act, TV actors, entertainment personalities, and authors, or uh, uh, or no, sorry, ent- entertainment personalities well, and viewers. In, I mean, like in, when in the world of the production blog, yeah, or in the world, or, or in the world of in the world of you know, um, people on Twitter where you can just Twitter them of Joel McHale on Twitter. Where I can, you know, ask him a question about community and maybe he'll answer it. Or, you know, I don't know, Sean Ryan on Twitter where he just, sometimes he just goes on and is like, for the next hour I'm answering questions about the shield, uh, the unit, and the Chicago code. Go. You know? And uh, we'll just we'll just feel questions. In, in that age, like, we, we expect, I guess, to have, to be sort of, um, uh, to be addressed, to have our concerns addressed by... Uh, uh, you know, by people who were formerly remote. Um, though, of course, the time that they spend doing that is time that they're not spending, you know, working on the TV show or movie or comic book or, you know, a novel that we loved them for in the first place, right? So, um, so I don't know. Do is this a, is this just a uh, an unmitigated fuster cluck, and it's Im- impossible to. Uh, to uh, to make it work, or I don't know what do the what do the writers owe the readers other than you know one book in exchange for twenty four ninety nine. I mean, I would say that I think that it's important to distinguish the emotions associated with the experience and the dialogue that comes with the experience, and the moral obligation or or any kind of obligation, social or moral obligation that the producers have for the material, right? Because because they. The people who create the material and publish the material do understand that the way that they do their work has an emotional effect on their audience. That's a big part of how they market their stuff, how they go to market, right? Marketing not in the sense of advertising, but in the sense of how do we go to market with our product, building anticipation, cultivating customer loyalty. You know, every product wants to do these things, right? Well, not everybody. Some people just don't care, and they're you know fronts for you know laundering money for the mafia and whatnot. But we're not talking about them right now, unless. But no, I don't think that the Song of Ice and Fire is an elaborate front for a numbers-making scheme. Um, although, although, reason, although Skype Five definitely is. <laughs> Skype Five definitely question. is. But but so the question is okay can is George R R Martin responsible to an extent for the way that people feel about the delay of the book and for that I would say yes because he's made a heavily serialized novel series that creates takes a lot of work to get through because it's a bunch of big long books and then you know you want to read the next one right obviously and so yes he's he's responsible in the sense that he he caused. Uh, this particular arc of emotional experience. Now, does that mean that he has to fix it? I don't think so. I mean, he doesn't have an obligation to these people to always make them feel good, right? Because, because, well, if you because if you think that he has a moral, if you think that people who produce products that go to market. Right. If you think they have an obligation that everybody should always feel good, then they shouldn't be going to market in the way that they do ever anyway. 
right? Because the like, advertising and marketing and everything associated with, with cultivating consumer interest is tremendously manipulative. So either from a, you know, a consequentialist standpoint where you look at people's attitudes and what effect you have on them, clearly you're not doing what's best for them. Or from an ontological perspective, if, you've, if, you matter, if it matters how you make them feel, then you should be acting with an intentionality that kind of matches the respect and dignity that that process deserves, right? Um, so, you, so at a certain point, to even allow for this sort of activity to take place, you have to give the producers a certain amount of leeway and be like, okay, this is just for fun funsies. This is like the market, right? This is like people buying stuff for fun. And so in that sense, you don't have a strict moral obligation to these people. So then it's like, okay, well, do you care about them? Right, and there, there's a there's a bigger that's a bigger uh, that's a bigger issue, right? Was like if you don't care about your fans enough to to give them what they want, uh, well, then that is an issue for the marketing of your products because the fans like to think that you care about them. Do you have to? No, uh, but if you don't, then that's going to have consequences, uh, and that's going to hurt. That's part of the relationship that you've been building. So that that's kind of like the sides. I don't think that he has a moral obligation to to do right by these people, but. I think that it is likely that he cares what they think and feel, and in that sense, he might want to get his horse on, get on his horse. Now we don't know. Maybe something happened to him. Get his that's, horse on. Yeah, that's, yeah well, that's the that's what the Dothraki do in the, in yeah, the book, exactly. right? <laughs> so like maybe something happened. Maybe there's a reason, right? Maybe maybe he doesn't want to talk about it. Maybe it's just not very good yet, and and you don't want him to publish something that's crappy because then he, he's better off waiting forever than publishing something that's awful. Um, well, so, so there's there's two sort of interesting things about this one so i think the reason this has come up in particular with this series more than than other series that have had delays um was the fourth book so in the first three books he uses you're seeing the entire cast of characters in the fourth book he only gives you the story of half of the characters and sort of in the book says this is the fourth and fifth books are really one big book and so we're just you're not going to hear about half of them until the fifth book comes out. So it and for for a lot of sort of the most beloved characters, it's actually been like five, six years at this point. So I think people are, are, are more upset than they would have been, you know, had we seen what happened to some of them in the fourth book. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the the other sort of series where this has been an issue I know was the the Robert Jordan series. Um, I forget yeah, what it's he called. Had a stroke, right? Uh, the Wheel of Time. Oh, yes. That's, no, I, yeah, he. I think he died. Um, yeah, yeah. And there was there were still people who were angry. Um, <laughs> they don't know. Which 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 just goes to show that there are assholes in the world. Yeah. Um, but the uh, but I don't know. It, even uh, uh, Dave's roommate uh, from college, Jeremy, who's actually the person who introduced me to those books, was like. Um, don't bother reading it because it doesn't end. And was just like you could tell, like there was anger there. He wasn't like mad at uh, at Robert Jordan, but just like you like clearly felt betrayed when we talked about it. Um, yeah. And like, the thing, I mean, yeah. there's something to that because it's kind of like I was. I I think of it like a marriage, really. Mm. You just like if you're, you know, that's that's a the the most common situation where you're like making an invo- emotional investment, and it's it's an emotional investment over time. That you expect to keep going, and so. Well, if you start, but reading, sometimes if you start reading other books, then you make sure that that first book doesn't know about it. Right. You know, maybe maybe right. you build yeah. on like a different persona when you do that. Exactly. You have to go to the books you know. like I've been hurt before. Okay, book like I'm. <laughs> I've <have> been. <that. laughs> <laughs> you knew what you were getting into when you signed on for this. Yeah. Well, I think I think one of the things that adds to the texture of the Wheel of Time books is that there is a point where you get the sense that he stopped trying to end it. 
Right, and it's it's like around the fires of heaven, at least from my experience, when you're like, oh, okay, we're not going to go anywhere with this. I actually haven't read all of the la- latest new ones. I mean, I stopped around the, the extent of the ones that had been published when I started, and this was like in 1998 or whatever. So like, I've read, and then maybe I kept going for a few years, or maybe it's even as, 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 as later on as like 2001, I was still going at it. But, I mean, you get the sense. You get to the point, the books, each one is successively longer than the last, it seems, and it's, it's not strictly like that, but that's what it feels like. And it's just, oh, okay, you're not even trying anymore to finish this thing. And, you know, yeah, I don't got, know. He got, he got really into like uh, clothing and tailoring. He just started adding like a hundred pages of descriptions of what people were wearing in each book that yeah. got increasingly uninteresting. Yeah. Um. Here, here's, I mean, by comparison, so like one of the things, I don't know, if you were going to say something really pertinent, I, I, I shouldn't interrupt, but, um, uh, but, uh, but one of the things that I will throw in here really fast, because I'm going to assume that it was and I'm just inconsiderate, is, is that these, I feel like these authors shouldn't be so concerned about finishing their stuff too slowly. Uh, the guy that I always think of in this situation is, is David Eddings, right? I love David Eddings. And David Eddings wrote this marathon macro cycle, right, where it was like two series of five books each, you know, and, and they each had multiple follow-ups and all this other stuff. Uh, and that's the whole Belgariad and the Malorian, um, right? And, and you know what? He finished them. I mean, they're for younger readers. They're not as, there's not as uh, heavy duty as uh, The Wheel of Time is. Uh, they're a little bit shorter individually. But uh, he finished them, and you know what he did? He did it again. He finished and he did it over again. And, and there, there, there was less time that elapsed between the first and sixth books of his second epic sword series, the Elenium and the Tumuli. There's, it's five years between the Diamond Throne and the Hidden City coming out. Uh, and, you know, the first one took him nine years, right? Um, but, like, you know, he just kept pumping them out there. And, I mean, it's the kind of thing where maybe perfect is the enemy of good. Now, maybe it isn't with a book. You want to set it in stone. But, like, I think people see these series maybe as their life's work and they want to get them right. I'm like, well, if you hurry, you can do it twice. Uh, <laughs> if you're Isaac Asimov, you can write 500 books, right? If you're Isaac Asimov, and here I am, 30 and written nothing, but, you know, whatever. Uh, Are you kidding? You no, have a 30,000-word disquisition on Dragon Ball Z, <laughs> I'm Fair considered the, the finest scholarly tome on the work, I'll add. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, anyway, that, that's, not, that's neither here nor there. The, the main I mean, point I, is that... I guess, I guess like, the, the, the tacit irony of this is that you know, he may be taking so long uh, so as to assure himself that he's producing a, a product that's high enough quality to satisfy the very people who are bitching and moaning about that, the fact that he's taking too long. Well, right, right. That's, right? That's, I mean, right yeah. Uh, the thing is, you know, uh, on the one hand... Um, you know, this new sort of intercommunication we have between the producers of our media and the consumers of those media uh, allow the consumers to sort of get behind the scenes and sort of dole through the minds of, the, of the, the makers a lot more. But, you know, the converse is true as well, right? I mean, the people involved in making these things have much more opportunity to sort of like poll the masses and see what people like about it, right? You know, once upon a time, like, you know, if you, um, if you wrote a, bun- a bunch of fan fiction, you know, starring the characters from some book that you really liked, you know, you and probably um, your embarrassed family members would be the only ones who'd ever read it. But now, you know, the authors of these books might might be you know able to see it as well. And it can sure. cut it can cut either way, right? I mean, you don't depending upon like how skillful the author is, you probably don't. You may or may not want him or her to know what you like about the thing and consider changing what he or she is working on to tailor it. You know, for if you're the Wachowski brothers, I think you should pay close attention to what people liked about your stuff and not make the Matrix sequels. But, um... <laughs> and, well, well, and, the, 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 and example of that is George Lucas, right? 
Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. That's right. Fifteen years to get the prequels, and then everybody hated them. Right, right. Uh, and, and, and for the same reason, right? Like he took all the things that people didn't care about and emphasized them, and took all the things that that really sat at the core. You know, the things that even the, the people who most love Star Wars might not have been able to necessarily flesh out into a cogent thesis. Um, but it just managed to jettison them out the window. Anyway. Yeah, but it also goes the other way. And I'm trying to think of some examples where it's like, okay, we gave you the original, now we're giving you a sequel, and we're giving you everything that you wanted, right? Like, what's, what's yeah, well, a good you example? Don't, you don't just want, like, fans. Crank for- 2 High Voltage. <laughs> well, Crank 2 High Voltage is a brilliant piece of work. <laughs> <laughs> I think the best, the best example of this is uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, this, where it's just all movie. inside jokes and references and exactly. hardcore stuff, and it's, like, zany antics and... And that movie is just tiresome. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, 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 I mean, I was I was a fan of Kevin Smith basically up till and including that movie. I mean, you know, if you, if you watch it while heavily enough medicated, it's a, it's a great film. But mm-hmm. then afterward, you know, it's it's just it's self-aggrandizement on on it's group self-aggrandizement. It's not I Kevin Smith am so wonderful. It's you know he's he's giving his fans due service. Um, but he's not really giving them anything else to build on. He's not. He's not at the same time illustrating to them why it is that they liked him in the first place. Mm. Um, he's just sort of returning to the old stuff that that was successful in the past. Yeah. So but yeah, I, I think that in many sequels, it's a situation. Uh, people, and this is probably more obvious and, and prevalent in movies than in other kinds of media, where you know we will give you what you wanted, and everything else about this will be cheapened, and we'll hammer the individual creative agency out of it. So you know, it's easy to point to people who are being too self indulgent. I think I think that. Maybe the issue isn't in those situations uh, the individual versus the fan base as much as it's sort of the collaborative process of a multi like a multi participatory art. I guess I don't know. Like people, I also don't necessarily. Maybe it is presumptuous of us to say, "Well, George Lucas, you should have made better Star Wars movies." You know, like maybe that's not entirely fair because yeah, I mean, maybe it's like, okay, yeah, I could make a better Star Wars movie than you could. Maybe the argument there is like release Star Wars in the public domain so that we can all make Star Wars movies. Um, and of course, that would have cost him billions and billions of dollars. But uh, yeah, maybe maybe it's not fair because I can't, I can't help but think of that and be like, we, really? Like he needs like like we can require him to do his job in such a way that he does what we want, um, and and he, we have a no no no. We can, well, we can well, re- well, I mean, from a market perspective, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you do what we want, or we're not going to buy it anymore. He figured well, out that. Well, yeah, we're not we're not upholding our end of that bargain, right? I mean, we consumed the prequels on mass, and, and all of their you know burger joint free toy tie-ins and you know bedtime ensembles and yada yada yada. I'm wearing my Django Fett putty putty pajamas right now. Yeah, so. no, I, I've, <laughs> I've got my Moss Eisley thong on as we speak, and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> guess where we put the elephant? You'll never guess. Yeah, you know what? That place is a wretched hive of skull and of uh, scum and villainy. Yeah, what, once, once uh, Disney ABC bought it out, they actually cleaned it up a lot. They got Giuliani in there. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty, I like it's to think that you, you take off your pants and immediately the music starts playing. Like, speaking of which, it's almost midnight on the East Coast, so I know it's time for some of these panelists to take off their pants. Uh. <laughs> That's assuming that your pants aren't I'm, off already. I'm, re- I'm regretting that I ever entered into that bar bet with you, rather. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we'll leave the conversation there for tonight. Uh, if you have anything that you want to contribute, you can uh, comment on the show notes uh, for this episode over at overthinkingit.com. In the meantime, visit us there, www.overthink. God, the, the, uh, the, the outro has gotten so short without all that... Uh, 
all that other stuff. Okay, I'll do it. If you have anything, if you have anything that you want to say, you can email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com, though we don't really read that anymore. Or you can call or text at uh, 203-285-6401 for the listener feedback show that never seems to happen. And in the meantime, if that's if we're not available enough for you, if we are as unreliable as George R. R. Martin, you can find us every No, well I that's what I was talking about. Like we have committed that, you know, we'll record a podcast every Sunday night. You know what? We do it. Finish the damn book, George. No, I'm teasing. I'm, I'm actually not one of the haters. I, I don't know. I'm rambling at this point. His God, problem is he's way. trying to write it on Skype 5. <laughs> <laughs> damn it, Skype 5. <laughs> There's the callback. Visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve I was trying to do my It Probably Doesn't Deserve as though I was Skyping out. But then I probably got drowned out by the other people. Well, thanks for filling us in there. (laughs) Again, I regret that bar a bit. (laughs) 